Please open your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we'll, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 just for a moment and point out a verse that I overlooked and passed over earlier today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, our subject is greatness in the sight of God and pressing forward to obtain the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I focused our attention on verse 24 that asked the rhetorical question that they all knew the answer to. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. We should run to be the best. The 25th verse says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Verse 25 is explaining how a man wins a race. He is temperate in all things. Temperance is self-discipline. In our country, a number of years ago, we had the temperance movement, which prohibited any use of alcohol because a few little old ladies got carried away with false religion and had the temperance movement. Temperance does not mean abstinence. Temperance means self-discipline. And the temperance here is self-discipline. In verse 25, every man that striveth for the mastery, everyone that wants to be able to win the race, everyone that wants to be the master of the 100-meter dash, in the example I used earlier, is temperate in all things. Athletes are known for their very stringent, diligent, Rules that govern their entire lives for training, for diet, for practice, for the way in which they execute their particular event. They watch videos of it. They go over every step of a race. They go over every motion of coming out of the starting blocks. They are temperate or self-disciplined in everything. They have a training table. They eat the right foods. They get the right amount of sleep. They get the right amount of training. They don't overtrain. They don't undertrain. They are temperate in all things. And we as Christians should be self-disciplined and temperate in all things. We should make enough time for the Lord. We should make enough time for Bible reading. We should make enough time for prayer. We make enough time to do what the Lord's called us to do. Now they do it. To obtain a corruptible crown. No matter how fine the gold is that makes up an Olympic medal, it is going to decay along with everything else in this world. But we, an incorruptible crown, that the Lord will give everyone that loves His appearing a crown of righteousness and a crown of glory in that day that is to come. We have little time, but I want to share with you some other men from the Word of God and hope that it encourages your hearts. We refer often to five great men that God listed. And I would like you to turn to Jeremiah 15, where we can find a couple of them. Then we'll turn to Ezekiel 14 and find the other three. In these two passages, Jeremiah 15.1 and Ezekiel 14.14, God raises the names of five great men. And we would like to be in their company. The reason that God raised the names of these five great men is that they had saved many others from God's judgment by their righteous lives. But he is pointing out to Judah that Judah's sins had reached a point that even if those five men were there interceding 
For Judah, it was too late. He was going to judge them anyway. So the reason the names are used is not what we're after today. We want the names and we want to think about how they made the list. How did they make the cutoff to be among the five great men? Jeremiah 15.1 Then said the Lord unto me, This is Jeremiah the prophet warning Judah, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Judah was going into captivity and Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian was going to haul them 500 miles away and put them in the province of Babylon and in the city of Babylon for their wickedness. And it wouldn't help if Moses and Samuel were there. Was Mo- did Moses walk with God? Amen. Remember last Sunday? Moses knew God better than Abraham did. God never told Abraham his real name. Jehovah. I am that I am. That was a special revelation to Moses. Moses and God had a relationship the Bible describes as two speaking face to face. Two friends speaking face to face. That was Moses. Moses walked with God. But what we want to remember about Moses is he was an intercessor, wasn't he? Did he ever save the nation of Israel? Did he save them once? Did he save them twice? Did he save them over and over? By his righteousness and by his prayers for them, God would have mercy upon the nation. But here the Lord is saying, even if Moses was here joined with Samuel, it's not enough. I'm going to judge Judah for their sins. Samuel is mentioned here. Do you remember Samuel? I've already given that one away this morning from a song that we sang. He killed a sucking lamb. Have you ever seen a little lamb? Have you seen a sucking lamb? He killed a sucking lamb as a sacrifice to God, and the Lord delivered them from the Philistines. He was an intercessor when the whole nation was afraid. And if you were to go to that passage in the Word of God, and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 7, you would find out that Samuel knew the situation. God was not going to receive their prayers, but he said, let me go to the Lord and pray for you. Samuel was an intercessor. Samuel saved the nation by his praying. Moses saved the nation by his interceding on behalf of the people. But here the Lord is saying, it wouldn't matter if I had them both. I am sending them into captivity. Before we leave this, are you fathers like Moses or Samuel? Are you an intercessor for your family? Are you an intercessor for our church? Samuel saved the nation. Moses saved the nation repeatedly. Are you saving your family? It doesn't matter how old you are, you can pray for your family with the sincerity and the fervency and the righteous life of a Moses and a Samuel, and you can save your family. Ezekiel 14. These are great men. These are the greatest of men. These men are singled out by the Lord hundreds and hundreds of years later by the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel to point out how wicked the nation was, but he's using men that had great reputations with him and that should have great reputations to us. Ezekiel 14, 14. Though these three men, here's three different men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. I want you to notice exactly what I'm going after. They had personal righteousness, 
And they would save their own souls if they were in Judah at this time. God would deliver them just like He delivered Jeremiah. But they would not have any residual effect on the rest of the nation because He was going to judge the rest of the nation. Briefly, Noah. Was Noah a righteous man? God looked upon the earth. He was a preacher of righteousness and God saw that he was righteous and perfect and walked before him and he saved him and he saved his family because of him. There is not one noble thing said about Shem, Ham, Japheth or their wives or Mrs. Noah. There is not one notable thing about them in the Bible. And in fact, the Bible says plainly in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 that it was Noah's faith that saved Mrs. Noah and three sons and their wives. There were eight people in that ark by the righteousness of a man and his prayers before God. Are you that kind of a man? Noah was a great man. And he's listed here as one of the five. Daniel. Did Daniel intercede for the nation? Was he a righteous man? When a law was passed prohibiting men from praying to any other god but the king of Persia, what did he think about that law? Did he go home and open his windows toward Jerusalem? As Solomon had prayed at the dedication of that temple, if we are ever captive in a foreign land and we pray toward this holy place where your name dwells, you will hear from heaven and heal the nation. Did he go home and do the same thing he had always done? He did. He didn't care what the law was. He wasn't afraid of lions. He thought they were little pussycats. And so he was thrown to the lions, but the Lord delivered him. If you read Daniel chapter 9, you will find out his prayer of intercession for the nation. By reading the book of Jeremiah, he came to understand that 70 years were about fulfilled in the captivity of Israel. And so he went and confessed the sins of the nation. And God raised up Cyrus the Persian to deliver them out of the city of Babylon and from the province of Babylon. Daniel was just like Moses, Samuel, and Noah. We have a fifth one, Job. Was Job a righteous man? Did he fear God and eschew evil? Did the Lord love Job's righteousness so much that he bragged to Satan and said, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is how many others like him in the earth? None. So does he fit our spiritual superlatives? Do you know that there are comparative words that you are faster than someone, but there are superlative words that you are fastest? And the superlative here is, Job, there's none else like him in the earth. Was he an intercessor? Every time his sons had a birthday party, what does it say Job did? He rose up early in the morning and would offer a sacrifice for every one of them in case that in the levity of a party, they had cursed God in their hearts. Are there grandfathers and great-grandfathers and fathers in this assembly that will pray, have prayed, but more importantly, will pray this day and forward like Job because God sees those prayers and Job got his whole family back. And when those three friends were brought before the Lord in Job chapter 42, God said, I'm not going to listen to you. You're going to have to go get Job to pray for you. Then I may forgive you for all the mean things you said to my servant Job. Listen, the Lord gets us down where we need to be. He's able to humble those that walk in pride. And those three proud, self-righteous men picked on Job too much, and it was Job that had to pray for them in Job 42 to deliver them from their sins. Five men. If all five had stood before God, it was too late for Judah. That's the reason they're used. 
but we want to know why the five are there, and we want to pattern our lives after the five. I hope you understand why we went to those two verses. We want to be like Moses, Samuel, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Thank you, Lord, for giving them to us. The Lord's face is open unto the righteous. Psalm 34, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you live a righteous life, life like these men, he will hear your prayers. One man, one man living a righteous life and one man believing in prayer can change huge things. If a whole church walks righteously and loves and believes in prayer, what can we do? Do you think we might be able to accomplish more than going to a tea party? I say that one man in here can do more than all the tea parties because the tea parties are contrary to God's order for men submitting to their civil government. But praying for civil government is by order of the God of heaven. And if we were all to pray for our nation, we could change our nation. We change our nation more by prayer than telling jokes about our president. We reverence our president for the office that he holds that God gave him Whether he be fit for it or not is God's choice. Our nation doesn't deserve a fit president. Have you seen anything in our nation that would call for a fit president? I haven't. So we pray for him. How about your family? Noah's pretty exciting. Job's pretty exciting. Job gives us an example. Do you pray that God will have mercy on your children? Even where they might not even know that they had sinned. Or that they might just slip in the levity of a party. What character is given to us about Job? Are you like Job? That is a great man. That is a man that is greater than any other man on earth in the opinion of God as he argues with the devil about a mere man. That is exciting. That is exciting and it should move us all. How about the great kings of the Bible? We know that David is a great king and he's a man after God's own heart. And he was a standard by which all the other kings were compared. But I want to give you two other kings. And I want to explain some language that is used about them. Second Kings chapter 23, and we'll use our brother Newell's favorite king, Josiah. Second Kings 23 and verse 25. And I want to stir you up to be like King Josiah. We've already dealt with David. We read Psalm 101 by David. We want to be a man after God's own heart. We want to be sold out like David was. Nobody loved the house of God more than David. David wouldn't miss church. David would be there. David loved to worship. David loved to praise. David loved to give thanks. David loved to sing. The instruments that were used by the Israelites from for the last thousand years before Jesus Christ were invented by David. David wrote the poetry. Asaph and he wrote the music. And they invented the musical instruments for them. He loved to praise the God of heaven. He was so committed to giving the best that he possibly could to God. You know how many times I've preached to you about him and his conversation in 2 Samuel 7 about wanting to build a temple for God when God had never mentioned a temple being built for him. David came up with the idea. God was overwhelmed by it. The Lord God came down and said, I never mentioned to anybody that I needed a temple and that I wasn't content with this little goofy tent that Moses built, that I needed something made out of marble and gold. I never said anything to anyone. But David wanted to do that for the Lord. David had defeated all his enemies. David was sitting in his beautiful palace home. 
And he said, it's not fair, Nathan, the prophet, that I'm sitting here and God's being worshipped in a tent. I want to build him a temple. The Lord came down and said, you're not going to build the temple for me. Your son's going to build it. And while you want to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house instead. And his house still lasts to this day. The family tree of David, my dear brethren, the family tree of David exists at this very moment because on the right hand of Almighty God in heaven sits Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, by both parents. One legal, one biological. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We've already been over David. Look at Josiah. 2 Kings 23 and verse 25. And like unto him was there no king before him. What about David? What about Jehoshaphat? What about Hezekiah? And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses Neither after him arose there any like him. What made Josiah an exceptional king so that he could be called the greatest in this text? If there's none before him like him, if there's none after him like him, then he was the best, wasn't he? He won the race to be the best king, didn't he? By some measure, Josiah was the best. What was it? Revival. He turned to the Lord like no other king. He was sitting in his palace one day, when they came from the temple and said that while they were renovating the temple, they had found the Word of God. And they began reading to him Deuteronomy and what God was going to bring in judgment upon Israel when they sinned. And he tore his clothes. And he went. He had a revival, the likes of which the Old Testament doesn't know appear. That's why he was the greatest. That is for all of you who feel like so far... Maybe through yesterday, maybe through today, at 12.50, you have not been living the way you should have. So should you give up, or can you still be the best? I thank God for His Word. Amen. None of you can escape the two-edged sword of, script, the sword of the Word of God. Right. If to this moment you know you haven't been the soul out on fire exceptional Christian that you should be. Here's an example for you that when a message comes like this to you, you can walk out of this place and you can be that man. And the Lord will measure you by the way that you turn to Him. And if your turning is greater than anyone else, you're the best. You've won the race. 2 Kings 23-25. There's a way to reconcile the Bible. It just means we've got to study it a little bit. Was Josiah greater than David? Jesus isn't called the son of Josiah. Josiah's family tree, other than David's family tree running through it, is not mentioned. But was Josiah the greatest? He was the greatest in turning to the Lord. The emphasis on the word turning. Let me give you another king. 2 Kings chapter 18. You only have to go back a few pages and we'll get one of Josiah's grandfathers. 2 Kings chapter 18. And this event was mentioned by our young brother who prayed for us. A few moments ago, 2 Kings 18.5, speaking of Hezekiah, another king of Judah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now wait a minute, I thought that was the language for Josiah. It's the language for Hezekiah. Hold on, 
Did the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, to the man that took five pounds and turned them into ten? Did the Lord say the same words to the man that took two and turned them into four? Okay. And we all understand. We're, by, by some measure, see, five to five is great. Five to ten is great. Two to four is just as great. The man with two can't help it that he wasn't given five. And God doesn't expect him to do anything like the man with five. He just expects him to be faithful with the two. So here we are. Hezekiah. What does it say about him? Does it say he was greater than any other king because of the way he turned to the Lord with all his heart and might? No. It's because he trusted in the Lord. He had the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, come and surround the city of Jerusalem and blaspheme the God of Israel. And no one had stood before Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. No one. And Hezekiah went in before the Lord and rolled out that letter of giving him the terms that he had better surrender to the king of Syria. Assyria. He rolled that out before the Lord and he said, listen, look at this. Look at this. And deliver us. Right. What happened that night to that poor army? What's that little infant syndrome where they just die in their sleep? Well, there were 185,000 of them that died that night at the hand of the angel of the Lord. Let's, let's keep thinking about Hezekiah. Did he have great faith and trust in the Lord? The verse says he did. He didn't have a doctor come in and tell him that he had a few days to live. No doctor ever told Hezekiah that. A prophet of God told Hezekiah that. Isaiah the prophet came in and said, Set your house in order. You're going to die. The event is in our Bibles three times. It's in Kings, Chronicles, and Isaiah 38. Set your house in order. Thou shalt surely die. When a doctor says that, we get frightened enough. When the God of heaven says that, there's no hope. What medicine are you going to take? You going to run down to GNC and get stronger vitamin C? You going to cut out the red meat a little bit? You going to eat chicken instead? Or the other white meat, pork? What are you going to do when the Lord says, set your house in order, you're going to die? Hezekiah did what every great man would do. He ignored Isaiah and turned his face to the wall and begged God for more time. And his prayer is in Isaiah 38. And I sent it to our brother Scott yesterday. He turned his face to the wall and he wept sorely. And he begged God for more time. And his holy reasoning and his prayer is found in Isaiah 38. And it's a wonderful prayer to learn how to pray to the God of heaven and to reason with him. One of the ways he reasoned was, if you cut me off early, the grave can't praise you. I won't be able to tell my children and my children's children about the truth of your word if you cut me off. It was wonderful reasoning. Isaiah couldn't even get out of the palace. He's only a hundred yards away in the middle court. And the Lord says to him, turn around, get back in there. Isaiah the prophet comes back into Hezekiah and says, the Lord's had mercy on you. He's heard your prayer. Now, how long was that prayer? Do I need to walk around this building one time for you to figure out how long the prayer was? The prayer was short. But he trusted in God with all his heart. He didn't care if God had come and said, Thou shalt surely die. Is your situation going to be, is your situation bleak right now? Is something in your life bleak? It's not that bleak. Isaiah went back in there and said, The Lord's given you 15 more years. How can I know it for sure? You want to watch the sundial move? You want to watch the shadow move? Which way do you want it to go? Well, forward wouldn't be that hard. 
Backward would be better. Well, watch it closely. So he had the sundial of Ahaz there, and Hezekiah watched it closely, and the shadow moved backward ten degrees. Fifteen years added to his life. Is that decent faith? The Lord says it was more faith than he had seen in any king. And so that's why he's the best. How much does God require from us? He requires the love of our souls, mind, strength, heart, body, everything we've got. The Lord requires that of us. That's what He wants. To be the best, we give Him all that we have. Look at Matthew chapter 13. How important should the kingdom of God be to you? We're talking about greatness in the sight of the Lord. That's our purpose today. Greatness in the sight of the Lord. We don't want to be average Christians. We don't want to be neglectful, slothful, lazy, resting, sleeping Christians. We want to be diligent, zealous Christians. What should you sell for the kingdom of heaven? Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, we're looking for superlatives. I was going to call this this preaching today spiritual superlatives. The best. The greatest. Watch. Look for superlatives. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. How much does a great man give for the kingdom of heaven? Everything. All that he has. You will not hold back anything to be a great man in the sight of the Lord. You will do anything in your power to get closer to the kingdom of God where the truth is preached, where godliness is practiced, and where Jesus Christ reigns, and where good works prevail. Just like David was going to cut off evildoers from the house of the Lord, he was going to keep company with all those that feared God and kept His commandments. Here's the simple words to us from the Word of God, sold all that he had. Nothing would hold us back from pressing closer, farther, and doing whatever it takes to be pleasing in God's sight and to be under the full lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and honoring His kingdom. Because it's like finding a treasure in a field. It's like finding a goodly pearl. If you're a man looking for a good field, or if you're a merchant man, you'll sell. You'll sell out to buy the truth. Praise God for these examples in the Word of God. What should you desire? Should you desire... To be a decent Christian? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What's a decent Christian? How about a diligent Christian? How about a zealous Christian? How about an all-out, full-speed-ahead, flaming Christian? That's what we ought to be. That's what Paul was. I have fought a good fight. Not I have slept a good sleep. I have enjoyed a comfortable life. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. The race was done. He had run the full course. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. I want you to notice, look for superlatives. God has set some in the church. First, apostles. That's the highest and greatest gift God ever gave the New Testament church. I love it when the Lord puts things in order for us to understand. God has set some in the church. First, apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. It's too bad the charismatics and Pentecostals never read verses. 
You know, they don't read verses because they don't really believe the Bible. They believe their gifts, if you want to call them gifts. But did you notice that Pentecostals and Charismatics never get above the bottom gift? The trash of the gifts? Why don't they start at the top? God ranks the gifts. Speaking in tongues is a joke compared to being an apostle. You can fake speaking in tongues. The devil can cause speaking in tongues. And it doesn't do much good to anybody. Read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's the least of the gifts. Why do they start at the bottom of the list? Because it's a little harder faking being an apostle. It's a little harder faking being a worker of miracles. They're pretty good at that though. But it's harder. See, we would help them if they claimed to be an apostle because I'll provide the strychnine. I'll provide the strychnine and I'll take them to the right floor of Greenville Hospital so that they can find the cancer ward and clear it. Why don't the charismatics come to town and instead of meeting in the Bilo Center where they take all these poor little women and milk the last dollar out of their pocket, why don't they go to the hospital and clean out the cancer ward? Right. Why don't they? Because they've never healed anybody in their lives. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has set some in the church first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that. I love the order and the words of our King James Bible. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. If you're ever a deacon, you're above speaking in tongues. It's the gift of helps. An ordinary gift of a New Testament church. You're above speaking in tongues. Verse 29, are all apostles? No. The, the, this is a rhetorical question. You're supposed to know this. Are all apostles? No. We can't all be apostles. There's only a few of them. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Yes, according to, prim, to, according to Pentecostals and Charismatics. But the answer again is no. You know, Pentecostals and Charismatics say if you don't speak in tongues after baptism, you don't have the Holy Ghost yet and you're not saved. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But notice what he says, and this is what we're going after. This is what we're going after. We're not fighting Charismatics and Pentecostals today. We're going after this. The superlatives of the Bible. Covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. I want two things out of this passage. Number one. God, in stressing to you that you should strive to be the best Christian possible, tells you to earnestly covet the best gifts. You should desire to be an apostle if you lived then and had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You should desire to be a prophet. If you lived then, and the gift of prophecy prevailed, which it hasn't for 1,940 years. You should aspire to be the third highest gift, a teacher of the Word of God. Covet earnestly the best gifts. What I'm trying to point out is if your heart is right, and you're in line with Scripture, you are aiming as high as you possibly can. We are not aiming to be a decent Christian. We're not aiming to be an average Christian. We're not aiming to be, oh, I'm thankful that I'm saved. Hello? Show us that you're saved. By aiming like the Apostle Paul did. 
And then he says in the last part of 31, And yet, though I have listed all these gifts, with apostle being the greatest, prophet being next, teaching being third, though I have listed all these, and though I'm telling you that you ought to earnestly covet the best, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There is a way of serving God that is greater than anything in the list that I just gave you. And so we come to this. Love is the greatest. The next chapter is the chapter about love, jammed right into the middle of 12 and 14 about the gifts of the Spirit given to the early church. Right in the middle is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Introducing that chapter, he says, I show unto you a more, help, more excellent way. There was an excellent way to serve God by coveting the best gifts of being an apostle, prophet, and so forth. But there was a more excellent way of serving Him. And he closes up chapter 13 by saying, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You know, I get so tired of Arminians. These that believe in decisional regeneration. Somebody makes a 30-second emotional decision for Jesus, and they tell them their name is written in heaven, and they're saved forever no matter how they live. Why in the world do they think that? Where in the Bible is such a thing taught? Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. The greatest evidence of eternal life is not faith. The devils believe and tremble. The greatest evidence of eternal life is charity. It's love. Because devils don't love. Love is the greatest evidence. Jesus said, all men shall know that ye are my disciples by the love ye have one to another. 1 John chapters 4 and 5, it's love shows that we've passed from death unto life. Love. And here we are. Earnestly does I covet the best gifts, yet I want to show you a more excellent way. Because in verses 1 through 3, introducing chapter 13, he says, what if you were an apostle? What if you spoke with the tongues of angels? He uses hyperbole to go beyond the gift of tongues. No one speaks in the language of angels. But if you had the language of angels, if you had, if you understood all mysteries, if you had all faith so that you could remove mountains, and if you were to give your body to be burned, if you were perfect in all these ways and great, but you didn't have love, it is nothing, it is vanity, it is a clanging symbol. So what is love? It's verses four through seven. And I, I gotta tell, I gotta preach you the truth. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Then verses 4 through 7 are your mandate for how you treat other people. There are 15 phrases in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And those 15 phrases are the definition of love. The world does not know about love. If Elton John sings about love, he means the practices of sodomites. Because he's a sodomite. If Whitney Houston sings about love, she sings about the greatest love of all. Do you think she means God's love for us? Does she mean our love of our neighbor? When Whitney Houston sings about the greatest love of all, and that is the title of her song, her most popular song, what love is she talking about? Love for yourself. They don't know about love. This is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. And if you treat people that way, you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Charity suffereth long. We put up with each other offending us, and we do it for a long time. And even if it involves suffering, we'll do it over and over again. Charity suffereth long. I'm not going to preach you love is the greatest. I've done that before. The outline is going to be linked at the bottom of this outline, which you can find on the website in just a few hours.
But do you remember? Love is the greatest. If you serve according to the definition of love in verses 4 through 7, it's only one sentence. You can do one sentence, can't you? It's only one sentence long. I know it's got 15 phrases in it. And they're all pretty hard. But do you know that if you practice that toward me, and I practice that towards you, do you understand what the passage has just told us? It is a more excellent way than earnestly coveting the best gift of being an apostle. If you can love and forgive and forget and bear and help and show kindness, you are greater than an apostle. Because even if you were an apostle and you didn't have that, it would amount to nothing. But if you have that and you're not an apostle, you are great in the kingdom of heaven. And a sermon series was preached, Love is the Greatest, because love is the greatest evidence of a child of God. It has never been, nor could it ever be, faith. Faith, without works, is absolutely dead. One of its works is love. What did Peter say to make your calling and election sure? How do you know that you're one of God's elect? He said you add to your faith virtue. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge godliness, to godliness patience, to patience temperance, to temperance brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. So the last two are brotherly kindness and charity. Love. It's the crowning stone of knowing that you're a child of God. Amen. Love is the great evidence. Are you able, do you, are you interested in other people? Do you care about other people? Are you able to put up with them offending you? Do you love to serve? Oh, I think that leads us to another point. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. I can't preach any further on love. You already have heard it before. But I have promised you that for every quarter of a year, for as long as I am in a pulpit, I will preach to you that love is the greatest evidence of a child of God. And I just snuck it in in case you were wondering when I was going to get this quarter done. I wasn't going to get it done in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, so we just got it done just now, because that is the evidence of a child of God. You want to be great in the sight of God and in His kingdom? Get outside yourself and think about others. Consider others and serve them. Let them offend you, let them slap you on the cheek, and you turn the other cheek to them and love them anyway. You pray for those that despitefully use you, and you bless those that curse you. You love your enemies instead of just your friends. You practice love, you have done something greater than an apostle. But that brings us to this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, they wanted to hear this sermon. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They thought about it. Look at Matthew chapter 20. They argued about it. Matthew chapter 20. James and John got their mother up to come to Jesus and say, Can my two boys sit on your left hand and your right hand? They're still acting like children at the end of Jesus' life. Can my two boys have the preeminent seats in heaven? Then Jesus made this explanation. Oh, I'm not in the right passage. It's, in, it's not the passage I wanted. The explanation was the Gentiles exercise authority over other men, and those that exercise authority are the greatest. But in my kingdom, it's different. My kingdom... It's who's the servant is the greatest. And so in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus worked down... Yes, it is this passage. I just didn't see it. It's verse 25. It's a lengthy passage. It begins way back with the mother of James and John in verse 20. And it extends all the way down to verse 28. 
In verse 25, Jesus said unto them, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles, those are the greatest among the Gentiles, exercise dominion over them. They have authority over other people, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. It's the highest office you hold, and the more people you have under you that make you great in the Gentile kingdoms of the world. But here's my kingdom. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And minister here doesn't mean pastor. Minister here means servant. Verse 27, which a pastor truly is. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Thank you for the synonyms compared. Holy Spirit. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus shows his greatness by his service in the church. We show our greatness by our service. So if we look at the Word of God, and we want to be great in the sight of God, we will emphasize doing things for other people. We will pray for them. We will serve them. We will forgive them. We will endure and bear the things they do that disappoint us or offend us. How much more can be said? We are accused of being legalists. We are accused of sweating the small stuff. We are accused of being detail freaks. There's a reason. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And it's time to close. What was Moses the greatest in? I've already used him, but there was something that the Lord used a superlative to describe Moses. Meekest man in the face of the earth. How would you like to be Miriam and Aaron and stand up and accuse Moses of taking too much on himself and that they were as holy as Moses? It's Numbers 12. How about Korah and the other 250 princes that stood up and said Moses had taken too much upon himself? Do you know something about Moses? Did he take that job on himself? Or did the Lord have to try to kill him in Exodus chapter 4 to get him to take the job? He didn't want that job. He tried to get out of that job repeatedly. He was the meekest man in the face of the earth, and they picked on him as if he was some vainglorious man who wanted that office. The earth opened up her mouth and swallowed Korah and that group of people, and fire came down from heaven and burned them up. What about Aaron and Miriam? They got a bad case of leprosy, and they got a little lecture from the Lord. You should be careful about messing with the man that I appear to face to face. You see, there are a lot, there are all kinds of prophets. This is, I'm just summarizing Numbers 12. There are all kinds of prophets, Miriam and and Aaron, and, and you too might be in that category of just general prophets. But Moses ain't no general prophet. I appear to him face to face, and he's had experiences with God you can only dream about. Numbers 12, I just want you, you want to be great in the sight of God? You're meek. You do not want any praise. You do not want any glory. You just want to serve. You just want to be the Lord's. Let the Lord have all the attention. Let the Lord have all the glory and let everybody else get all the attention. But we're not there. We're right here. They call us legalists. You know, everyone that calls us a legalist doesn't even know what the word legalist means. I've tried to teach you that. A legalist is what the Apostle Paul had to deal with throughout the New Testament. 
They were people that thought that keeping the law, this legalist, means something. It means that there's some law involved. A legalist is someone who you have to keep the law in order to be saved. We don't believe any such thing. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. And when we say that, we mean it from beginning to end. We're not legalists, but we are detail freaks. And here's why we're detail freaks. Matthew chapter 5. We have one theme. We want to be great in the sight of God. Look what Jesus said as he opens up and introduces his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Your greatness in the kingdom of heaven is your attention to the details of God's word. If you break the least of His commandments and teach other men that it doesn't matter about that commandment, then you are least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you keep and teach the least and the small commandments of God's Word, then you are great in the kingdom of heaven. There are some men that found this out the hard way. Cain brought an offering to the Lord at the right time. But the Lord didn't receive Cain's offering, nor did He receive Cain. Cain felt that he was being persecuted because God frowned on his beautiful grain that he could bring to the Lord. And so he invented an alternative sacrifice instead of that bloody little lamb that Abel brought. But God didn't like Cain's alteration of the details. And though he brought it to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, meaning Jehovah in your King James Bible, and though he brought it to the right place at the right time, he brought the wrong thing and God rejected his offering and him. Moses, as faithful as he was, and the Bible says he was faithful in all his house, Hebrews chapter 3, Moses smote the rock with a rod when God said, Speak to the rock, and Moses never made it to the land of Canaan. Nadab and Abihu practiced contemporary worship. They offered strange fire to the Lord in Leviticus chapter 10, and God burned them up for offering strange fire. David, as glorious as he was, when he moved the Ark of the Covenant, moved it on a new ox cart that he had built for it and purchased for it, but Uzzah the priest reached back to steady it when it looked like it was going to fall off that new ox cart. God smote him dead because David did not follow. And these are the Bible words in First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 13. David did not follow the due order in moving the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark of the Covenant had rings on the corners of it that a staff was to go through and priests were to carry it on their shoulders. David tried something different in worship and a man died for it. King Isaiah that God blessed to be great thought that he could offer incense before the Lord and he entered into the temple to offer incense and the priest stood in front of him and said, O King Isaiah, it doth not belong to thee to offer incense in this house. And he would not leave. And while he stood there and confronted the priest of the living God, leprosy rose up in his face and he had a facial case of leprosy the rest of his life because he thought he would modify the worship of God. We are detail freaks. And why are we detail freaks? Because we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, not for our praise, but to fulfill the words 
of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. You know, people find out about the way we worship and they call us strange. You're detail freaks. Where's your piano and your organ? Why don't you have any musical instruments? It's simple. The New Testament says, sing. Nowhere does it say play. No church of saints had musical instruments in it until 200 years ago. And then it was Catholics and their daughter churches. Baptists didn't have musical instruments in them till 100 years ago. That's an invention of the devil. That's to add a carnal element to worship. The worship of the New Testament is with the Spirit. We sing to each other because we're supposed to be teaching and admonishing and exhorting one another with songs, spiritual songs and hymns and psalms, according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. When the Bible says, speak to the rock, we believe that Moses should have spoken to it. He smote it with a rod. Did he get results with the rod doing it the wrong way? Did water come out? Yes. Do results tell us anything? Never. What tells us something? God's Word. God's Word. Moses never got to go in to the land of Canaan because he shamed the Lord by smiting the rock instead of speaking to it. We live in a county of Baptists. Most of them, many of them, adore a man named Charles Spurgeon. He had the first megachurch, 20,000. Would be in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. But I can tell you one thing that wasn't there. There was no musical instrument. Right. When D.L. Moody visited him, and D.L. Moody had to have instrumentation to assist his kind of preaching in order to get people down the aisle. Do you think he could have a musical instrument in Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle? Not on your life. Do you know what Charles Spurgeon said about musical instruments in the Church of God? He said, if we're going to praise with mechanical devices, we might as well start praying with mechanical devices. Amen, hey, amen brother. There was no Baptist church with a piano 150 years ago. Not one in the entire earth. It's an invention. They call us strange. They call us detail. We'll take that one. We haven't changed anything. They're the ones that have changed. Amen. What did Martin Luther? Martin Luther loved music. Have you ever sung, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? He wrote that song. Do you know what he thought about organs in the church? They're the ensign of Baal. Do you know what Charles Wesley said about musical instruments in the church? He wrote a bunch of the songs we sing. The Wesleys love music. Do you know what he said? I don't mind that there are pianos in our chapels and that they are seen. But they never better be. No. It it is okay that there be pianos in our chapels throughout England, but they never better be heard or seen. That's the Wesleys. They call us strange. They're strange. They've added to the worship of God. This isn't our hobby horse. This is just one illustration from the Word of God about Matthew 5.19 and why we do things the way we do it. If the Bible says sing, we sing. Because we believe this strange thing. That our God is intelligent enough to know the difference between play and sing. Because in the Old Testament, where the worship was entirely carnal... They knew how to play to your senses. And they played all kinds of musical instruments. And they had all kinds of incense for your nose. And they had all kinds of beautiful sights for your eyes. But it was a religion of the senses. The New Testament is a religion of our spirit. It's the inner man that worships God. And we sing to communicate doctrine. We teach and admonish one another in psalms, 
hymns and spiritual songs. That's why we have our three books. We have a Presbyterian hymnal because there's more hymns in it. We have a Primitive Baptist songbook because there's more spiritual songs in it. We have a little black psalter because we haven't figured out a better way to sing any psalm when we want to sing a psalm. That's why we have our three books. Just trying to keep God's word here in Matthew 5.19. But look what it says. If a man, if a man breaks and teaches other men to break the least commandment of God's word, he shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. But if we take those little commandments of God's word and we make them important and we keep them and we teach them, great in the kingdom of heaven. More could be said. Have you heard everything today? But I am what I am by the grace of God. But that grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Let's go out of this place today committed. If you're a wife, I want to be the most excellent wife on earth to the glory of God. I want to put the law of their mother into my children's ears and hearts. Proverbs 1.8, and all of chapter 31. Don't you ever forget, mothers, that all of chapter 31 was written by a mother to a son that was a king. And she didn't hold back anything. She warned him about evil women and the danger that kings get into of all the women around them. She warned that king about the dangers of alcohol. And then she told that king the kind of a woman that he better marry. And that's the description from 10 to 31. And mothers, for you to be a great mother, you better be filling the ears of your children with things like that. If you men, are you going to be a great husband and a great father? It's a long distance race. Don't go out of here and be a good father today. Be a good father today and tomorrow. And then do the same thing tomorrow. Let us be faithful in all that God has called us to be faithful in. Let us be prayer warriors like the five intercessors. If you need revival in your heart because you haven't been living the way you should be, then turn unto the Lord like Josiah and be known as the greatest turnaround in this church in the sight of God. Let's live for the Lord with all our might. He is worthy of it. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. We can and should do it. May the Lord bless us to that end.